Welcome to TV7 Israel's podcast. We invite you to listen and share our latest content from Israel and the region. Shalom from Jerusalem. This is Watchman Talk, a series of conversations with Israeli military and security experts and practitioners. I'm Amir Oren, and our guest today is Relik Shafir. One should not say retired Brigadier General, but reserve Brigadier General, as you are still being called up occasionally. You are up to date, and you are advising the Air Force and speaking for him. Welcome. Thank you. The Israeli Air Force pilot is, uh, of course, held up as uh, one of the prime examples of uh, Israeli military ingenuity and success. Could you tell us in a few sentences who is or what is the Israeli Air Force fighter pilot? It is a person who's able to uh, mesh together uh, ingenuity, individuality, excellence with team player, uh, a person who is uh, adept at working both as a team player and as an individual, and who is able to uh, think in four dimensions. These are traits that can be found through rigorous selection phases, um, both technical and personal, and then a period of indoctrination in the flight academy that brings out the, the, these traits and characters. Which you had it at one time. I headed that, the flight academy at the time, um, and then fine-tuned through the flight academy and then at the operational squadrons. Now, it sounds like a contradiction. One uh, must be very competitive, uh, very egocentric uh, in order to make it through flight academy, and then, of course, uh, in a dogfight. Yet, it has also to be a team with one's wingman, or perhaps with one's navigator or co-pilot uh, in, in other uh, aircraft. How, how can you find people uh, who are adaptable to both? Think of a, a basketball player um, like myself. I, I played second league, low rank basketball. I could not put the ball in the basket. I was in charge of, the fa- of fouling. So I was in charge of making sure that the guys who can shoot have a clear path to the basket rather than shoot myself. Um, and that, that was my job, and I was happy with it. Uh, and that's a team player. You do what you do best, and if somebody else is better at you at something, so be it. It's a team game on the one hand. And on the other hand, yes, you want to be the best you can, but not better than the best you can because that may lead to your death. Now, in World War II, there were people like yourself, the um, defensive players or the guards, namely the fighter escorts, or as they were called at the time, pursuit planes. This P-38 and so on. Now, of course, it's F for fighter. And they cleared the way for the bombers. But when you uh, became a pilot, you flew fighter bombers. The, um, the functions were now intertwined. So actually, you were part of the transition in the Israeli Air Force from French-made planes, 
like the Mystere and Mirage, to the uh, uh, A4 Skyhawk, F4 Phantom, F-16, and F-15, which you all flew. Was that, during the time you were a cadet and um, a junior fighter pilot, was that uh, a marked transition? Was that an important part of the Israeli Air Force history? Definitely. Um, the, the idea that you can uh, use a fighter plane like an F-16 that can deliver bombs on the one hand and defend itself well, on the other hand, in air-to-air, was the actual transition because the F-4 was very good at air-to-ground, was not very good in air-to-air, and it needed the Mirage, which was uh, an easier plane to fly and was designed for air-to-air. Then when the F-15 arrived, which was a clear air-to-air, um, that until the F-15I arrived, the E model, the American E model, was a pure air-to-air, and the F-16 arrived, it could do them both. That was the actual transition. So we're talking in the uh, uh, end of the 1970s, beginning of the 1980s, when the machines themselves became such that the intertwining was uh, actually perfect. Yet you have uh, to uh, decide before you take off or when you plan the mission uh, how much munitions of what sort to take in addition to fuel. Um, It has to be very uh, deliberate. Um, And therefore, when you're in the air, you're either air superiority or air to ground. I think the the F-16 is the perfect example. You can take four air-to-air missiles, uh, advanced air-to-air missiles and still carry um, a sizable load of bombs so that you can make a decision whether to switch to air-to-air or not. And you can also delay the decision to switch from air-to-ground to to air-to-air until you're really in a tough situation if you're flying F-16s, let's say, versus MiG-21s. So uh, that allows you uh, to complete your mission in air-to-ground and be ready to take on the attack in the air-to-air, the airplane is good enough to handle them both. Now, General Shafir, as as a teenager, you obviously followed the successes of the Israeli Air Force uh, in the 1967 uh, Six-Day War, which were both air-to-ground, destroying the Egyptian and other Arab Air Forces um, on the ground, as well as in the air. But later, during the so-called War of Attrition um, in 1969-70, just before you enlisted in the IDF and became an Air Force cadet, it turned out that the um, Egyptians, helped by the Soviets, found some solution to the Israeli superiority by putting the emphasis on surface-to-air missiles. So when you became a cadet, was that changed already evident in the curriculum? Not really, because it, it really became evident in the 73 war. Uh, until that time, I think we were pretty sure that we were able to take care of the uh, stationary uh, uh, SA-2s and later SA-3s um, and take care of them and still work in the same manner as uh, in the Six-Day War, the War of Attrition. Uh, but apparently that was not the case because the missiles, especially the SA-6, and the um, movable gun dishes, which was a, uh, a powerful uh, ground-to-air artillery, 
um, had taken a, a big toll on the Air Force during the 73 war. And then it became apparent that, uh, as Ezra Whiteson wrote in his book, the missile had bent the aircraft's wing, and it took another nine years to straighten that wing back. Weizmann, which you mentioned, whom you mentioned, is the former Air Force chief uh, who basically rebuilt the Air Force almost from scratch and uh, prepared it for the Six-Day War. He wasn't the commanding officer at the time, but for eight years he was in charge of the Air Force, later defense minister and president um, of Israel. What drove you as a youth to the Air Force? Why did you want to become a pilot? I didn't want to become a pilot. Um, I spent my high school years, my father was uh, an emissary, my high school years in Scotland and Canada, and I came back to enlist. And uh, in the place where I was born, everybody was either in the commandos uh, or uh, one type of commando or the other. And so I prepared myself uh, at least to be a paratrooper or something like what, this. What part of Israel was that? Uh, it's a small town called Kiryativon. And I was a swimmer as a youngster. And uh, a lot of my friends, uh, this is where they went. And so I prepared myself for this. But I got called into the Air Force and I just went in and um, they never kicked me out. So that's how I became a pilot. Did you expect to be washed out uh, knowing that uh, so yeah. many people get in and only few uh, graduate? Statistics, I didn't know, you know what to expect. I, I never met a pilot, never spoke to a pilot before. So uh, I didn't exactly know where I was going. And I figured I'll do the best I can. And when I, I drop out, that's, that's it. And it just uh, didn't happen. Now, there's a hierarchy in the Air Force, of course. Fighter pilots uh, are at the top. We all remember The Right Stuff, Tom Wolfe's yeah. uh, book, later made into a movie. Then you have the uh, helicopter pilots, the uh, transport pilots, navigators. Uh, was that already apparent at the flight academy when people uh, were uh, either uh, selected to be fighter pilots or one of the uh, lower categories? I wouldn't call them lower, maybe other categories, but this was apparent then and still apparent now that the, the most difficult uh, planes to fly are fighter airplanes. They, they require more. Uh, and obviously people who are, uh, um, I would say, uh, competitive would like to be in the place that requires most, uh, the most difficult uh, missions and most difficult uh, personal uh, traits. So people look at this, and as you may know, even within the pilot community, there are different airplanes. And within the different airplanes, there are different roles to play, whether you're a wingman or a leader, flight lead, a two-man lead or a four-man lead, and everybody wants to be at the top. Tip of the spear. Yep. So uh, that's the game. And part of the game is keep that com competition, but not pay the price. <clears throat> as far as, as personal interactions <clears throat> and as far as accidents that uh, when I was a young pilot, we used to use lose about uh, 10 pilots a year just for due to accidents that are usually man-made. And this did not contribute to the quality of the Israeli Air Force? These bold pilots trying to push the envelope 
was that was a heavy price for sure. But did that also help uh, the uh, thinking out of the box, uh, which is characteristic of the Air Force? I think it did. Um, at the time, it seemed to be part of the business is that somebody gets killed around you or yourself. Uh, but getting that edge, the spearhead really sharp, you had to go uh, very close to the limits, very close to the ground. Um, but we found a way how to maintain that attitude without losing so many pilots. That happened during the 1980s. Now, uh, in other air forces, uh, which do not have uh, so much current operations or threats, many uh, good cadets, many good pilots uh, in waiting, choose uh, to be transport uh, pilots in order to go to the airlines. This is not yet the situation in Israel, isn't it? No, because uh, for, for two reasons. One of them is that most of the pilots do not go, after they leave the, <clears throat> the active service, uh, they choose to go to high tech, these kind of areas, and spend one day a week in their original squadron. That could be for 20 years as a reserve pilot because we're a small country and we're using this so that pilots can be called upon and relied upon um, in an original squadron, not in a reserve squadron. Uh, some people do go to El Al uh, where they, uh, they can become proficient at flying uh, airplanes and there is no advantage to transport pilots at that stage. So uh, we kind of overcome this using the fact that the geography and uh, the fact that we give them preference. Um, what is uh, the um, age, the uh, age, the the cutoff age for reserve uh, pilots in fighter squadrons? Uh, there used to be no cutting, uh, no age. Now it's fifty-one. So you could be, let's say, uh, 20, 20, 25 years a pilot in a reserve, an F sixteen, F fifteen pilot. Fly for one day a week. That's uh, taking quite a load. Uh, if you go to work, you work four days and you fly for one day. Um, and then you reach an age that generally uh, there's a tapering down of capabilities. And um, Did you feel it about yourself? I did. Um, I uh, left the, the, I went into reserve. I was um, 48. And um, I flew F-15s in reserve, and I felt that after a couple of years, I wasn't as good as I, as I was before, and physically. I Eyesight, was, reflexes, what? Uh, maybe the reflexes, or I would say understanding a complex situation and making the right decision. Um, I could see that the information flowing in there was an overflow of information that prior to that, I didn't feel the overflow, but now there's a lot of information coming in. I wasn't able to uh, turn that information into action items as well as I did before. And I figured this is a good time to walk away uh, before uh, they kick me out. But the um, modern technological aircraft, uh, which are really uh, flying computers, um, do they add to the um, quality, to the edge of the Israeli pilot vis-a-vis -vis the Arab pilot who flies the same machines? Uh, 
Uh, I think we are putting a lot of emphasis in pilots on their ability to take in a lot of information and turn it into decision-making rather than the old type of pilotage, which was very technical, how you fly the airplanes. The airplanes are easier to fly now. And the difference between pilots is how they're able to mesh in the information and turn it into a, a work schedule. So um, that had changed the selection of pilots with the, in the uh, Air Force Academy uh, more people who are able to to take that four dimension world of information and flow in and physical pressure and mental pressure and turn out the right answers. Uh, we can test this through uh, simulators and in the air. And what we do is we put a lot of pressure on them to make sure that that, that part is really um, uh, edges out as the right decisions at the right time. And because we were able to simulate things, because we were able to see the videos of what they did, we can track and see who's doing a good job, who's advancing better, and who should be flight lead. So um, there, the mechanism is there to make the right decisions about the pilots. But if you compare these pilots to their comrades in arms from the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, or even Iran, um, the Iranians, of course, do not have a comparable aircraft. They used to have Phantoms. Yeah. And, and when they uh, gave up uh, reluctantly the F-16s, you got to fly them True. earlier. But if you uh, take the F-35, which uh, Israel uh, has allowed the United States to supply the UAE with, and obviously other Gulf countries uh, will follow, an Israeli fighter pilot in an F-35 against a similar trained, similarly trained Arab pilot in, in a similar, not identical, because you have your own peculiar avionics, but a similar plane. Who is going to win? Um, let me answer this in my way. In your diplomatic way? Not diplomatic, but philosophical. Okay. The Israeli pilots are made in kindergarten not the Flight Academy. The Flight Academy finds out these guys because in the kindergarten, these kids think out of the box, do not follow rules. They find ways around the rules. They find ways to think out of the box. And that's what we're looking for. So improvisation is better than discipline? No, it's the combination. Know when to improvise and know when to be disciplined. It's a very fine-tuned and very thin uh, uh, a place where some people are on that side, some people are on that side, and you want the people exactly who know how to blend these things. And this is something that their mother is in charge of and the kindergarten teachers, and you see it at the age of five. And then it's our job to seek them out. But General Shafir, there is also what is called in the German, American, and Israeli armies, militaries, mission command. And that is understanding your commander's intent, even if you lost contact with him, and you know uh, what is expected to you without further orders. This is also true in the Air Force. Of course. Um, 
this is something that means that the pilot in the cockpit, he is the extension of the Air Force commander, and he needs to understand what the Air Force commander wants at this particular time on this particular mission, whether to take this risk or not to take a risk. So he needs to understand the echelon, how the system works. And, you know, the Air Force commander and the whole command of the Air Force on certain days that I won't quote, they leave their office once a week and they go to fly. And they go to fly with the lieutenants and the captains. They drink coffee with them. They fly with them. Uh, they talk to them. So they maintain an interaction. So that lieutenant who thinks that there's a mistake, uh, he can uh, talk to the Air Force commander and, and tell him what he thinks. Um, and the Air Force commander listens, goes back to work, and he knows what's happening down at the line. So it's like uh, being at the shop floor and talking to the people if you're running, let's say, a machine shop or something like this. Also a culture of uh, ground truth debriefing, uh, finding out all the faults and mistakes in order not to repeat them and uh, improve for the next mission. There's a trick here. Uh, we run a system similar to uh, one that was invented in the Swedish Air Force, which is sociometric readings. So from the day one of the Air Force, when the cadets come in, they're uh, held up to sociometric readings by their peers, and that goes up to the Air Force commander. Peer review. Peer review. And that goes all the way. So when I was an F-15 pilot in reserve, I was a brigadier general, I would be rated by the lieutenants could say, this guy sucks. And I would get a rating. So <clears throat> then and you would see the, the sheet itself with the names of your raters? Of course not. But it's, it's your friends, your peers. And the uh, uh, squadron commander would call you and tell you, this is your rating. You should know um, about safety, the quality of flight, leadership, and so on. That is a defense mechanism for the pilots because they get rated by their commanders. But they can be a lot more cheeky and a lot more forthcoming because they have that defense. Because as a commander, when I have to choose somebody to be a squadron commander or a deputy, I see their commander's rating, I see their peer rating, and sometimes I say, their peers know more about this guy than their commander. I want this guy. It's, it's a very interesting mix of uh, a centralized system, and the Air Force is more centralized than any other branch of the Israeli military, and semi-democracy. Um, the pilots uh, cannot oust a commander, but they can point out of course they can. his mistakes. That's exactly what happens. If they think the commander is not suitable, they would give him low rating, and um, sometimes... Not too often, but it happens that uh, a person may be uh, beyond what his capabilities are. And so we would quietly remove him from command and replace him because he's lost the faith of his peers and his subordinates. But you would not choose his successor. It is not a revolt in which someone from within the ranks um, would be installed as the new commander. The... Um, mm. A chain of command would, would choose. The of course, yes, this would not, you know, this would not be needed uh, because the system is flexible enough to understand, okay, 
we put the guy, it's uh, the, I think, the Peter Prin Principle. Uh, we put the guy in the wrong place. We made a mistake by selecting him for that. He's not suitable. We should move him to another place and bring a replacement. General Shafir, um, in our next conversation, we will get uh, to your, to your uh, exploits, including uh, taking part in the bombing of Osirak. Um, in uh, June of 1981, and the dogfights uh, you won. But uh, just to wrap up this conversation, when you speak about the Air Force chain of command, it runs from the commander of the Air Force to the squadron and to the individual pilot. What was your role once you were promoted? You were already a squadron leader, squadron commander, and you were promoted in rank and position to a wing and base commander, but you were actually just the mayor of the base running almost the administrative functions uh, while your subordinates were in direct contact with headquarters, weren't they? Yes, and this is the uh, one of the great uh, secrets that once they take off, and it, I'm talking about an operational uh, mission. Once the operational mission takes off, I'm no longer their commander. They're commanded by the Air Force commander and his subordinates. And now that's what they have to do. Uh, while when they're on the ground or during training, I'm their commander. So, um, and I would fly every day as part of those in F-15, F-4s. Uh, CH-53s, and be part of the team every morning. This is something that I would do. And uh, you build up confidence. But you know, the squadron commander isn't the force ship commander when they're in the air. So uh, we learn to take the good things uh, of the local command and the higher command from the uh, control rooms and blend them together to get the uh, maximum out of the Air Force. But if uh, the mission fails, if uh, the squadron commander or the flight leader fails, whose responsibility uh, is it going to be? Because as your day, as his day-to-day -day commander, you trained him, you qualified him. Well, that depends on if he made a mistake. That would depend on the type of mistake or why the mission wasn't completed well. Um, if the mission wasn't completed well because the chain or the work within the squadron wasn't good enough, the training wasn't good enough, the preparations weren't good enough. You, you didn't supervise them. That's enough. my fault. Uh, General Relic Shafir, thank you very much for our first part in the conversation. Thank you, and we will be back for another episode of Watchmen Talk with General Relic Shafir. Thank you for joining us in another TV7 Israel podcast. For more content, visit our website at tv7israelnews.com or follow us on social media.